All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys, introducing Connor Freeman. He's a regular writer at the Libertarian Institute and a co-host most often with Kyle Anzalone of the great show Conflicts of Interest. Welcome to the show, Connor. How are you doing? I'm great, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Happy to have you here. Listen, so I have a problem. I have too many jobs. Far too many jobs. And so um, I'm glad that I hired Kyle to basically do my job for me at antiwar.com a couple of years ago and a few years ago now. And um, and I'm very glad that uh, you and he and Will are doing such a great job keeping track of all the news. Of course, Dave DeCamp, uh, the new uh, news editor at antiwar.com, and Jason Ditz, as always. Um, but so you guys have just been doing such a great job writing uh, for the Institute and for Antiwar.com, all these kind of news write-ups and keep a track of everything. Now, I heard an episode of Kyle's show uh, where you're kind of co-hosting there and explaining all about what's going on with the Iran nuclear deal. And since Gareth is busy writing a book about the last Cold War, and I'm busy writing books about the new Cold War and nukes and all these other things all the time, uh, I don't know the first thing about, say, the last half a year worth of Biden administration negotiations with Iran over getting over the U.S. getting back into the JCPOA that they're actually still sort of within. Anyway, you sure explained it really well to Kyle. So I'm uh, stealing from him and poaching his guest and asking you the same question. What's up with all this Iran deal stuff, Connor? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so basically, you know, the original negotiations, the indirect negotiations that started in Vienna in April while Rouhani was still in power, uh, the moderates, um, that failed. And uh, Trita Parsi wrote an important piece for responsible statecraft uh, showing how, I believe in May, the Biden administration told them that, uh, hey, by the way, you know, if you return to the de- if we return to the deal and you're still in compliance, we will we could still impose and reimpose sanctions and, and just screw you anyway. So basically sending a message like you're you have no you're you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. So what happened was, every, you know, it looked like with Raisi coming into power. You know, all the hype was that, oh, well, these are hardliners. They're not going to negotiate. You can't reason with these people. They're out of their minds. Uh, And and so, uh, you know, they basically spent the interim months between Raisi's regime, um, you know, government taking power and uh, and and returning to talks in the beginning of December, which they had said all along. They had the uh, full uh, intention. uh, That was their intention to return to talks and to get back and get the Americans back in the deal. And in the interim, uh, Blinken's, uh, Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, uh, spent all of his time uh, going around with the Israelis saying they have a right to defend themselves and all options are on the table. And, you know, basically saying we're we don't even think that they want to return to the deal. And 
uh, we give the you know we give Tel Aviv a green light to do whatever they want. And uh, so when they returned to talks, the Israelis immediately came out and said, "The Iranians are seeking a nuclear weapon, and uh, we know we have all this evidence." And uh, you know, previously when the talks started in April, they just attacked the Natanz centrifuge building and uranium enrichment facility, caused a huge explosion, power outages, and all this. And uh, when the talks were originally announced back in April, they attacked a uh, a cargo an Iranian cargo ship in the Red Sea. But this time they went more of a diplomatic route. And um, you know, I should just add that a couple months before talks started, Bennett met with Biden and said. Uh, I'm going to lay out my strategic vision for how to deal with Iran, and it consists of a series of clandestine attacks and the gray area stuff, and um, and basically said that the peaceful route uh, won't last forever, and all this nonsense, you know, just more and more uh, threats. So it was interesting because after the Israelis said they're seeking a bomb, William Burns, the CIA director, came out and said that's not true. And so the talks started, uh, basically seemed to get off to a rough start because Blinken and Robert Malley were coming out and going, um, you know, the window is closing, the window is closing. And the Europeans were kind of saying the same thing, but they have a really good, the Iranians have a very adept negotiating team, uh, arguably better than, uh, previously when the original deal was negotiated and they've secured some concessions that are pretty interesting. that are actually better than what they had pre, uh, before. And, um, but yeah, the lead negotiator is a guy named Ali Bagari Khani. And basically he put forward two draft proposals, which were covering Iran's nuclear commitments that they would return to under the deal, which they only started to walk back from after a year of the maximum pressure campaign. Um, after Trump left the deal in 2018, they waited until a year later in 2019 to start, uh, walking back their commitments. And then most of the things that they did to get hyped up are really in response. Most of them were demanded by parliament or they were in response to Israeli assassinations of their scientists, uh, or attacks on their nuclear program. And so they put forward these proposals and <laughs> the original reaction was, Oh, this is unreasonable. They're demanding too much. Basically, what they were demanding was a return to the 2015 status quo. They wanted a full implementation of the JCPOA, not what Obama did, whereas um, Mohammed Marundi, the uh, the brilliant academic who's uh, sort of their point man for international media in Vienna, um, who's, you know, goes, we haven't forgotten that the Obama administration imposed sanctions the day the deal was signed and that they went around telling uh, foreign businesses, you know, not to work with the Iranians even after the deal was uh, implemented ostensibly. So, uh, they wanted a full re reversal, like, you know, the rollback of the entire maximum pressure campaign and, a and, and they wanted guarantees and a, uh, uh, verification mechanism to guarantee that they would have all the sanctions lifted that are promised in the, uh, the JCPOA. And, uh, they said to the Europeans, you know, you have, you can write your own proposal if you don't like ours. And the Europeans are like, yeah, um, <laughs> they just never did. So by the end of December, it, you know, I got pretty optimistic and I think a lot of people did because all of a sudden, if you were reading, you know, the reports coming in from wherever, Al Jazeera, Reuters, um, Middle East Eye, you know, just reading all the quotes that were coming out of Vienna, the Russian envoy, uh, the, you know, even the European Union uh, broker of the talks, Enrique Mora, the nuclear negotiator, and uh, the Chinese are all saying, you know, look, the deal is now being negotiated on Iran's terms. And at that point, 
more and more progress started to build. The Americans were still dragging their feet. Robert Malley has proved to be a uh, just a horrible envoy, even though he was involved in negotiating the original deal and was, you know, marketed as a so-called, you know, an adult in the room. He's been very bad on this issue. You know, he recently just told the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee all options are on the table and the chances of returning the dealer less, you know, they're more, uh, returning the dealer way less likely than us just, uh, walking away, uh, and the deal failing. Um, but it did appear like they were going to return to the deal. And so in February and in March, there was this, um, even I'll just, before I continue, even the war in Ukraine did not seem to derail talks right away. So, I mean, the, uh, there was a dispute over the, the Russians wanted guarantees that their, um, you know, their obligations in the deal to do business and, you know, process uh, Iran's uranium stockpile into fuel, that that wouldn't be interrupted by the, the American sanctions blitz on Russia. And everybody was like, oh, well, this is it. The deal's done. There's no way it's going to happen. But that got resolved very, very quickly. And even this issue originally of the so-called undeclared sites that Israel told the IAEA about years ago that have, you know, these trace particles of unprocessed uranium that date back decades. And has always been a, um, a, a sort of a, an issue that the Americans and the Israelis use to thwart diplomacy whenever it seems things are going Iran's way. Even that seemed to be resolved because the IAEA cut, well, Rafael Grassi at the time, the director general, cut a deal in Tehran where they would... Uh, provide documentation and explain everything about what happened at those sites. And and the Iranians really wanted to put that issue to bed for good. Uh, but what happened in February and March was the Israelis started ramping up their attacks on Iran, including drone strikes uh, in Kermanshah on a drone facility uh, and another attack that has been alleged that occurred in Tabriz on a similar facility. Um, and also they, they bombed Syria and killed two IRGC um, members. And so in response to this, uh, Iran made a drastic step. They actually fired ballistic missiles at a site in Erbil that they claim was a, uh, a Mossad intelligence operation. And um, not that that's actually been uh, confirmed yet, but uh, I mean, the the attack on the drone facility in Kermanshah destroyed hundreds of uh, drones and was did severe damage to their drone fleet. And there's reports uh, out of Iran that uh, a few people were actually killed in Tabriz um, in this um, this attack in, in that uh, city. And uh, so after that, uh, or more or less concurrently, there was this massive push in Congress to thwart the deal entirely, led by not just Republicans, but Democrats. Uh, so Elaine Loria, uh, who's famous, who she's a congresswoman from Virginia, she's famous for um, supporting uh, Republican legislation uh, in the, it, it, called the Taiwan Invasion Prevention Act. She wants to make sure that uh, we completely do away with Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution so that Biden or whoever uh, who is president next can launch a war on China immediately uh, without any waiting time uh, or any kind of deliberation in Congress or, and, God forbid, a declaration of war. Um, we can just immediately go to war. But she led a... Um, she, uh, in the event of an attack on Taiwan, but she, uh, with, uh, Josh Gothamer, who is an, another huge democratic party, Iran Hawk in the house, uh, they, uh, gave a huge speech where they said they spoke for more than a dozen democratic Congress, uh, members 
who uh, and they basically said that, you know, we, we, we can't accept this deal. Iran is so close to a nuclear weapon and this IRGC issue. These these are the the you know, they're the leading state sponsor of terror and just hyping up the threat and saying that they would not support the deal. Tom Cotton led a group of almost a dozen Republican senators saying we need to move. Uh, we need to get refueling aircraft to Israel now. We need to get them more F-35s and military helicopters. You know, we can't wait. Uh, they need to defend themselves against Iran. Uh, there was even a group of national security, former national security officials and administration officials, including Elliot Abrams, uh, who came out and said, if they remove the IRGC from this foreign terrorist organization blacklist, it's an affront to gold star families. And uh, it's going to encourage daily attacks from this terrorist organization on American troops. And uh, the the Republicans uh, in the Senate, 49 out of 50 of them said that they would uh, not support uh, a deal with Iran unless it uh, dealt with their ballistic missile program and their support for their allies in the region. The only Republican in the Senate who has been good on this issue, and quite frankly, he's been better than any Democrat I can think of, is Rand Paul, which is interesting because you know, he was bad on the deal originally, and, and he uh, actually signed Tom Cotton's letter that was sent to uh, Tehran, where he said, um, you know, don't get too comfortable. As soon as we get a Republican in office, we're going to rip up uh, the JCPOA. But he's actually positioned himself to the left of Robert Malley, Biden's Iran envoy. Uh, when he was speaking to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Rand Paul was like, why wouldn't you just put taking the IRGC off this foreign terrorist organization blacklist on the table. You know, if you want to change the behavior of the Iranian government, then you need to offer them something. That's how negotiations work. And right now, sanction, just adding sanctions is not accomplishing anything. In fact, it's having the opposite of what you say are the desired effects, uh, you know, with uh, the advancements in, in Iran's nuclear program, which are, you know, pure, purely for leverage. But you know, it's hyped up as they're getting closer to Obama always. Um, but so there, there was this massive push uh, from Congress to just completely uh, send a message to Biden and Tehran that if a deal is signed, it would, uh, you know, break Biden's political, you know, it would destroy Biden's political capital probably in the midterms and certainly next time he, when he runs for reelection. And also to Tehran that, you know, whenever, if a deal is signed, we'll rip it up and even the Democrats will be behind it. Hang on just one second. Hey, guys, I had some wasps in my house. So I shot them to death with my trusty bug assault 3.0 model with the improved salt reservoir and bar safety. I don't have a deal with them, but the show does earn a kickback every time you get a bug assault or anything else you buy from Amazon.com. By way of the link in the right-hand margin on the front page at scotthorton.org. So keep that in mind. And don't worry about the mess. Your wife will clean it up. Green Mill Supercritical is the award-winning leader in cannabis oil extraction. Their machines are absolute top of the line. They simply work better and accomplish more for less than any competitor in the world. We're talking anywhere from a couple of hundred thousand dollars for the base model and up. So this is for serious business people here. But the price, as they say, will be worth it. Green Mill Supercritical customers' investments pay for themselves oftentimes in just weeks. Simple enough for almost any operator. Deep enough for master technicians. Their new novel techniques for inline real-time winterization are leaving their competitors in the key. That's GreenMillSupercritical.com. 
man, I wish I was in school so I could drop out and sign up for Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom instead. Tom has done such a great job on putting together a classical curriculum for everyone from junior high schoolers on up through the postgraduate level, and it's all very reasonably priced. Just make sure you click through from the link in the right margin at scotthorton.org. Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. Real history, real economics, real education. So, uh, and in the meantime, Israel in the last, uh, really since May, have ramped up a assassination program in Iran uh, that is much, I mean, the amount of, they, they might have killed six people here in just the last few weeks. So the, there was a high profile assassination of a senior Iranian, uh, of, of an IRGC colonel named uh, Hassan Syed Kodeh. He was uh, murdered in his driveway, parked in his driveway by two men on motorcycles, uh, bearing the hallmarks of previous MEK attacks, Mujahideen uh, call, uh, attacks on Iranian scientists. And, uh, and then they, they, there was now there's been, uh, there was another drone attack shortly after that, a quadcopter drone attack, just like they did in, uh, the Israelis did in Karaj last year in the summer in June, where they uh, destroyed a, a, well, they destroyed the roof of a nuclear, of the industrial shed at a nuclear facility in Karaj, destroying IAEA cameras. And it took Iran, like, most of the rest of the year to get Iran, to get the IAEA to say anything even approaching a condemnation of an attack that destroyed their equipment. And uh, the only reason they did that was because the Iranians said, we won't reinstall your cameras unless you, <laughs> unless you condemn Israel. And um, so... They uh, now there's uh, Iran, according to The New York Times, believes that they also killed a uh, aeronautical engineer uh, named uh, Sayyub Antazari, uh, who was poisoned at a dinner party. And then there was another uh, geologist that they killed who Israeli media reported, oh, this guy worked at Natanz, although uh, that's been disputed. They say uh, the Iranians and uh, people close to, the, to this man uh, have said that he actually worked for a private geological research company. But nevertheless, uh, Iran uh, reportedly believes both of these men were killed um, in Israeli assassinations. And now there have been, uh, after they, this is on top of that drone attack at the Parchin military uh, complex where they uh, attacked another drone facility, uh, killing an engineer. They, there's also reports of two more IRGC members who were martyred, as the Iranian uh, media is saying, in uh, two mysterious accidents. Uh, and so, you know, in the midst of all of this, the, uh, the Americans continue to basically say, we're never taking the IRGC off this foreign terrorist organization blacklist, which the Iranians were demanding, not as part of negotiations to revive the JCPOA, but as part of a side deal. And, uh, the, you know, of course I already said there's this, all this, um, opposition to that in Congress and everywhere else, the, the Israelis were against it. And so after they killed Koday, Biden comes out like a day later and, uh, well, there's reported in Politico that Biden has made his decision. He's not taking the RGC off the, the foreign terrorist organization list. And then there's a source in there in this report that goes, and he, he already had decided this like a month ago and called Naftali Bennett and told him about it. So the day that happened, Naftali Bennett tweets out, uh, you know, Biden is a true friend of Israel, and we're glad to see that the IRGC is going to remain on the foreign terrorist organization list where it belongs. 
Now, this is a huge issue because it's a sweeping uh, sanction that uh, the Trump administration implemented in 2019 at the behest of, you know, Israeli partisans like Mark Dubowitz, the uh, the head of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. It's part of what they call the Iran hawks call their sanctions wall. And what it is meant to do is preclude any of Trump's successors from ever returning to the deal because it would be too politically toxic. And Elliot Abrams was bragging about all of this in the last days, the last several weeks of Trump's administration, where after they killed Fakhrizadeh, uh, they just kept implementing new sanctions every week saying they'll never return to the deal now. It's going to be too uh, costly and and too complicated. We've just layered on uh, you know all these sanctions, and so it makes it practically impossible. And uh, and so the Biden administration is as basically, um, even if they intended to return the deal, which I'm not really sure if that's the case, even if Biden had all his wits about him, he's been known for decades as Israel's man in Washington. And the first thing he did when he came into office was fly a B-52 bomber over the Persian Gulf, eyeing Iran. And he named Richard Nephew, his deputy Iran envoy, the guy who wrote a book about how he's an, a sanctions artist and how he destroyed Iran's economy under Obama and how proud of himself he was for it. And, um, so at this point, basically, uh, we now have, um, you know, Blinken coming out and saying, uh, that, uh, oh, well, I should just add that the, uh, in the background of all of this is this, you know, Benny Gantz, the defense minister of Israel is urging like Naftali Bennett did last year in his meeting with Biden, I believe in August, that they want to build this NATO-style alliance in the Middle East with Iran, at, you know, in place of Russia, right? Justifying all the arms sales and all the integrated missile and air defenses um, to, you know, build up, sell all these weapons, and of course, all these weapon arms sales that go to the whatever it is, the UAE or Bahrain. Uh, it just, you know, the Israelis go, well, we need that qualitative military edge. Uh, so you're going to have to sell us tw twice as many or more our advanced arms to uh, be the, you know, the most formidable power in the region. And so basically what they're doing now is you have, again, it's like the military, the Pentagon and the Congress working with the Israelis to promote all this hawkishness against Iran for all their, you know, for all their special interest reasons, you have um, the new uh, general at CENTCOM, Michael Carrilla, who ha was saying in his confirmation hearings how the most thing, the thing I'm most excited about is uh, integrating missile and air defenses for Israel and the Gulf states and these Abraham's Accords uh, countries because he goes, that's the, the the greatest opportunity we have here. And and they used the uh, Houthi retaliatory strikes on oil facilities in the UAE to to promote this. And so now there's a uh, there's what's called the Abraham Accords caucus in both the uh in both the uh, the senate and the house and it's bipartisan and so now they're pushing um for uh this the pentagon to go ahead and do this and help integrate uh these military capabilities with israel and these states and now since trump moved israel into centcom you know everybody's all these special interests are behind this and uh so that makes returning to the deal obviously much less advantageous for more and more people uh, because you need, you know, Israel relies on having the great uh, phony Iran threat to justify billions of dollars in aid, um, you know, f from the Americans every year. And, uh, and so even though there's supposedly there's this sort of debate and factions between the military and intelligence apparatus of Israel 
there's this uh, Brigadier General Dror Shalom, who's the head of the Political Military Bureau of the Israeli Defense Ministry. Um, and uh, I guess he it's reported, I think, in the Jerusalem Post that he had a conversation with uh, a private conversation with uh, high level defense uh, officials and State Department officials where he's saying, look, Trump leaving the deal was a bad uh, decision and it's caused a much uh, more um, it's caused a much more dangerous situation here in the region. And we've heard you know arguments like this from different members of the Israeli security establishment, but the 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 Bennett administration and Yair Lapid and and people like this are, are and Gantz uh, are determined to prevent Biden from returning to the administration. They're basically trying to kill the deal entirely. I mean, it's not hard to uh, infer it's not difficult at all to see what their strategy here is with uh, killing people. And they just carried out a massive military exercise that went on for a month called Chariots of Fire, where they're practicing for war with Iran, including all the contingencies like fighting Hezbollah at the northern border. Uh, they carried out a uh, a massive uh, air exercise in the Mediterranean Sea that reportedly spanned 10,000 kilometers with uh, over 100 uh uh, military aircraft, Navy submarines. They, uh, uh, you know, they did mock airstrikes and, and practice repeated strikes in, uh, on Iran's nuclear program. And what was really, um, you know, even especially provocative about this was the initial reports about that exercise, which was sort of the last week of this month long series. Um, they were saying like, uh, the U S air force is going to be contributing. They're going to be, uh, helping us. They're going to provide refueling aircraft and join in the exercise. And that ultimately didn't happen, but the, uh, Carilla, the new head of CENTCOM I mentioned earlier, he was there, uh, observing, uh, many of these exercises. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's just been, uh, they have just not let up. And in the meantime, there's been, uh, a lot of other controversies going on with the IAEA, who are becoming uh, more and more political. Uh, and uh, basically, you know, this is ridiculous, but I mean, it sounds like I'm making it up. But uh, Rafael Grassi, the director general of uh, the IAEA, uh, which is supposed to be, uh, you know, monitor, they are monitoring Iran's nuclear program, and they should be saying again and again that they're under a safeguards agreement and they've been verified for decades that they're not seeking nuclear weapons and that we want this deal, the Americans to return to this deal because it's the most comprehensive uh, inspections regime ever implemented by the IAEA. But instead, what Grassi is doing um, is he's refusing to take, uh, he says that Iran's documents that they provided on those undeclared sites are not credible and uh, and that he, and then he goes to Tel Aviv and meets with Naftali Bennett and Bennett starts making threats against Iran publicly and saying that we I told that I told Grassi that we are we we have a right to defend ourselves and prevent Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon and to, uh, you know, engage in self-defense and action against their uh, nuclear program. And then Grassi just goes. Um, I just want to say that we're, you know, we're really, you know, it's important that we talk about Iran because the safeguards agreement and the nonproliferation treaty is so important uh, for global peace and security. Uh, you know, again, just extremely hawkish. And and the uh, the uh, the director, uh, Mohammed Eslami of the Atomic Energy Organization of Iran, called this out. And he's like, "Oh, you're uh, you're, you're making threats uh, against us." Um, you know, the Israelis are making threats with this and you're meeting with them. How many inspections are you allowed to have in Israel? Or how many inspections do you carry out in Israel? Are you even allowed to do an inspection? 
And uh, basically, they have taken this issue of the undeclared sites and uh, the Americans and the Europeans at this board of governors meeting at the IEA very recently. They put forward a draft resolution that was passed with, uh, I believe, only Russia and China opposing it um, that basically condemned Iran for reportedly because the IEA had put out a report based on the documents that they had provided, which I believe were even ahead of schedule uh, after this deal was cut a few months ago with uh, Grassi to, you know, put this issue to bed. And uh, they said, and and the Iranians said that report was horrible and and it was uh, hasty and unbalanced and and unfair. And and what happened was basically the Europeans, the E3, and uh, the Americans put forward this resolution condemning Iran and saying uh, it was just... uh, basically saying that they're being uncooperative and this is very dangerous. And it was passed. And then now the Iranians have retaliated by deactivating 27 cameras, which were installed voluntarily as a part of the JCPOA. They weren't, the IEA was not even getting access to that footage. Uh, They still have 80% uh, of their cameras installed as a part of the safeguards agreement. And the, um, and so that's the real joke. I'm so sorry. We're out of time, man. I think the whole audience, I, I know what everybody's thinking right now. Who needs Horton? This guy's got it all together. Um, this is really great, but the problem is I have to go because Ramsey Barut is next. But I think, you know, the real punchline here would be if the JCPOA completely falls apart, and then they're still in the MPT anyway, so who cares? They're still not making nukes. The Ayatollah already said that God said they're not allowed to, so what the hell? Right. <laughs> but anyway, I'm sorry, man. I could have sat here and listened to you for another half an hour. It's been absolutely great, and I'm going to listen to it again later, too. But I do have to go. But thank you so much, Connor. Really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Scott. All right, you guys. That's Connor Freeman. He's uh, one of my guys at the Institute. We're doing good work over there. It's the Libertarian Institute, libertarianinstitute.org. And uh, you can also find them at antiwar.com and on Kyle's show, Conflicts of Interest, as well. The Scott Horton Show, Antiwar Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, APSradio.com, antiwar.com scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.